Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this day. Uh, thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your love. Uh, thank you that you're a God that uh, nothing escapes uh, your sovereign control. Uh, thank you that you've created us in the image of yourself, your spirit, and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the other speakers on this hour and for this opportunity, Lord, in a country where we still have the freedom to open your word and to proclaim it, the truth of it, uh, without looking over our shoulders of persecution or people imprisoning us. This day could very likely come in our lifetime. So I pray that uh, today you'll take your word and teach us from it with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off, uh, it says in the workbook, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a very fast fashion. And so my hope is this, that we kind of get kindled up in yourself, stirred up in yourself. So that's the idea of the conference to uh, look at God's word. So I wanted to start, I had this idea the other day about before I was a Christian, I was born again, I was 39, 40 years old. I couldn't understand the Bible, but I was reading the Bible. And so I think it's really important for us as uh, followers of Christ to look at some disciplines, some disciplines that we should have when we're uh, looking at God's Word. So the first one, I think, is the easiest is to, to hear it. What are some ways you can hear God's Word? So your preacher, your Sunday school teacher, you can hear CDs and prayerfully you have the wisdom to discern if the CDs are based on the scripture. You can hear on the TV, but sometimes the TV evangelists aren't exactly teaching the true gospel. I'll say just that much about it and leave that alone. But the problem with hearing and just hearing is what? What's the problem with it? Well, you just hear it and then you can forget it easy. You know, growing up, I learned better sitting in the front row, hearing and looking and reading. So it says in, in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. It doesn't say if you heard it. You know, one day you didn't just roll up your spiritual sleeves and say, all right, I got this. You heard the word of God. Either the Holy Spirit was dealing with it or you heard it from someone. But you got to keep hearing it. Now, I confess to you, but uh, more than any other book of the Bible for me. So the next discipline is to read it. You have to, Revelations 1, 3 says this, that bless, blesses the person who reads this word. And the reason that's important is because you hear it and you go home, and then you read what the pastor or the Sunday school teacher taught for yourselves. And then the next important, and I, I think that's kind of progressive in a way, you study it, the Bereans study the scripture. And so what you're doing is you're hearing, you're reading, and then you study what you hear and you read. You don't need a commentary, because who do we have? We have the Holy Spirit. And then next, and I think this is also, like I said, it's kind of a progression, you memorize the scripture. You know, you hide it in your heart. I find when I'm uh, witnessing to people or people ask you a question about the scripture, if you don't have something in there memorized, you can't really share with them. You know, or to defend, you know, we call it defending the gospel apologetics. You want to be able to defend your faith. 
and then you meditate on it. Memorizing with Jesus. Remember Jesus when he was tempted in the desert, what did he do? He quoted scripture to the Satan. And then we meditate on it. You know, and that's not some Eastern meditation. That's you're actually you've heard it, you're reading about it, you're studying it, you've memorized some verses, and then you meditate on it. And so that brings us to this point and to the book of James as you apply it. It makes no sense and doesn't help us at all if we just do these things and we don't apply God's word to our lives. So, and then uh, just one last thing and then we'll, we'll get into the text here is, you know, this is kind of a word-filled life, but you want to have a spirit-filled life and those two things go hand in hand. Does that make sense? You know, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, don't become drunk with wine for that's dispensation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that word in Greek, filled, is a continuous, constant filling of the word. How does that happen? Colossians 3, 16 through 4, 1, you fill your mind, you're filling your uh, life with the word of God. Okay, so we'll go from here. So now James, I love the book of James. I'll have to say that I did one of these raising my hand when I was seven and a half years old. I was raised by very devout followers of Christ, and walked the aisle, got baptized at 13, but there was no change in my life. And I went through life, and military, and, you know, did all the things that were horrendous until God started drawing me to himself. I got back into church, and the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount, those two uh, texts, that's how I was born again, especially Mark 7, where it says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church? Didn't I go on short-term mission trips? Didn't I tithe? Didn't I do all these things in your name? And he, he says, I never even knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So this is why I have such a heart for James. Well, James is a very direct book, and it teaches us about living wise lives, to be, to be wise. In fact, it's not concerned about doctrinal issues of the Christian faith, but it talks about true religion, what it is, true faith, and true wisdom. Because you have wisdom from man is not like wisdom from God. Now, there are many Bible scholars, in fact, most Bible scholars, will, they call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And he, he's passionate. It's a very, like I said, it's a very direct book. He's passionate about uh, obedience to God's word. Now, one of the first verses I learned when I was born again as a 40-year-old adult was James 4.17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him what? It's a sin, right? So something might be a sin to you that's not a sin to me. But if I know what the right thing to do is, well, how am I going to know what the right thing to do is? Right here. Right here, God's book. So he compliments, and there's some, there's some confusion, too, in, in this book when you bring it alongside of Paul's teaching, but we'll get into that a little bit later in the lesson today. What I want to say about it on the front end is he compliments Paul's teaching on justification by faith, right? They have two different audiences, two different things that they're talking about, with his emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness. And uh, Dr. Wright had asked me, uh, to, to talk about this uh, subject today. Now, on the front end, I want you to know this. Our fruitfulness, it proves or it demonstrates true saving faith. It proves it. It demonstrates it. 
Now, let's uh, turn to James uh, chapter 1, and we'll read uh, 12 verses. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, the first thing I, I notice there is James doesn't say, hey, look at me, I'm Jesus' half-brother. He says, I'm a bondservant of God. We all should be the same way. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you consider various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in the high position. And the, excuse me, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he fades away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass. And flower fades off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, guess what? Will fade away. But now watch this. Verse 12. Blessed is the man, that's the same word used in the Beatitudes, who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it's clear all throughout Scripture that... Trials, they're a tool in the loving hand of God. You know, when I first read this as a Christian, consider it all joy, some translations say count it all joy, I didn't like it until I started understanding more about the Scripture. Now, trials, they can prove the strength of our faith. They can humble us, right? They, they wean us off of ourselves. They, uh, they wean us away from dependency on earthly things. Now, there's nothing wrong with having those things, a home and a car that's not, in and of themselves, they're not evil. But if we focus on that rather than on the Lord, we're, we're, we're headed down the wrong road. And they teach us, they show us, these trials show us what we really love. So let me just tell you quickly what happened to me. In 2003, I went in for a routine blood test. I've never been sick a day in my life. I'm a born-again Christian, and I go back, and the doctor says, there's something wrong with your blood work. So it's okay, no problem. So fast forward, I go in and he says, well, you're over 50 years old and we think with men they have some problem with the urinary tract and you probably just have an infection because in every other area of your blood work, you're perfectly fine. Well, I had cancer. And, uh, you know, I never once said, why me, Lord? I have to confess that I felt so the closest of all my Christian 27 years with the Lord when I had that, like he was right sitting on the bed with me, and he taught me more things I'd ever been taught. So it deepens your strength in Christ, and it, it started teaching me how to do his kingdom work, right? And it helps us to better, guess what, encourage people going through trials. I've had people say to me, oh, you got blue eyes and you're healthy, you never had any problems, and you explain to them, I had cancer, and they opened me up literally like they would open a deer, and, you know, but by God's grace. Uh, so now let's look at this, what, what Paul is teaching us. And what I, I love James, first of, first of all, because 
course, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also James was Jesus' half-brother. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, it shows us important ways for us to preserve through the trials, right? It's giving us the instructions, right? Look at verse 2. We need to have a joyful attitude. That's what you have to have. How can I have a joyful attitude? I know God is sovereign. I know he's in control. I know nothing can happen outside his uh, sovereign control. And then in verse 3, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We have to have class and understanding mind. That's what it's talking about. In verse 4, it says, a submissive will. We have to have, he says, and let endurance, let it have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And then verses 5 through 8, it's talking about a believing heart. It's not talking about your pumping organ in their heart. It's your, all of what we're made of, our soul, our emotions, our being. You have to believe it. In verses 9 through 11, you have to have a humble spirit. Do you know that you were saved by grace, but you were saved to love? Do you know that you cannot love unless you're humble? God's love will not flow through you if you don't have humility. And then I said earlier, uh, in verse 12, it says, one of the rewards for perseverance is you're going to be blessed. Now, it's not talking about, uh, you know, this is a whole other lesson about joy versus happiness, right? Joy is a gift from God. Happiness is if I get the job I want, I'm going to be happy, you know, or if circumstances work out right for me, I'll be happy. I said earlier that word blessed is the same word used in the Beatitudes in uh, Matthew chapter 5. And it's meaning it's profound inner joy, right? It's, and it's a satisfaction. It comes only from the Lord and it's for his sake. Why? Because we patiently endured the trial, right? Or test is another word. Now, uh, just turn a couple pages over. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, and I don't know how long that little while can be because it doesn't tell us, but if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. I can just tell you as a witness to God's work in my life, every little trial I've had has been perfectly timed, right? And he had a purpose. But then look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, it's for his sake. It's for his glory, but for our good. Does that make sense? Some of you that have been in my Sunday school class, I'm a real nut about application, and I say that we have to have a radical God-centered perspective to endure trials. It has to be radically God-centered. Uh, my wife these days are going through trials uh, at her work. And I keep telling her, you got to stay, f easy for me to tell her I'm retired, but you got to stay focused on Jesus. You know, that life, if you want to live an obedient Christian life, it has to be focused on Jesus. You have to have, you know, this is part of the discipline that you studying his word, you pray, you fellowship like this, and then you witness. You have that. So let me say this, the trials, they can be Big trials, they can be little irritations. I call them acorns, and all those acorns, when they get planted, and you water, they just grow into huge trees. So if our goal, now follow me on this point here, if our goal is just to fix our circumstances, 
we're setting ourselves up for constant frustration. Now, now, now watch this, what happens. Because the circumstances, a lot of the times, what? They don't get fixed, right? And even if they did get fixed, something else comes up, right? Are you with me? If you're with me, shake your head and say, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Bobby. Okay, we live in, then we live in a constant, we're always anxious. And what's the cure to anxiety? What does the scripture say the cure to anxiety is? Thankful prayer. Yeah. And, it, the, the, and then God, God protects our heart and our mind. But now watch this. If your ultimate goal is not just to fix the circumstances, but to know and to grow in Jesus Christ, then we can what? We can rejoice, right? Because God's design trials, why? For our growth and godliness. Do I like trials? No, I don't like them. I'm the first to tell you, I don't like them. But I know that God is in control and that if he has a plan there for me, then uh, here I am, bring it, you know. And I tell you, it sounds crazy, but having cancer and going through that, uh, it was one of the most amazing things in my spiritual growth to have that. So now we, when we focus, uh, as I say to my dear bride, our eyes on God, when they're focused and, they're, and the eyes are, that's kind of symbolic, are on God, and knowing him better, right? Guess what? We mature in him. You know, Ephesians says, when you put on that whole armor of God, you don't put it on your strength and your power. Well, who's, who's strength and power? What does it say in the scripture? We put on in his strength and his, his power. We mature in him. And we need to get that focus off the stuff, right, of this world. And that's hard. I mean, commercials and advertising and media has just gotten crazier and more sophisticated. And I'll tell you, trials with this kind of focus, then I said earlier we can be joyful because they teach us to trust God, to love God, and to know him better. There's nothing better, Right? We lack wisdom, right? You and I lack wisdom because we're human beings, and we need his wisdom when we go through the trials. Now, wisdom, don't let me lose you here. Wisdom grows through three different factors, and it's right here in the Scripture. It says knowledge, perspective, and experience, right? Every one of us in this room, every human being alive, we're all limited, and all of these, because we're humans, we have limited uh, wisdom. And as we're going through a trial, we don't know, okay, all that's going on. That's knowledge. Would you admit that? We don't know all that's going on. God doesn't have a timetable. God doesn't have a watch. We have time. We have, you know, watches. God knows everything. We don't see our situation from every angle, right? That's perspective. My father used to tell me years ago growing up, he says, don't start Pointing the finger at other people unless you've walked 20 miles in their shoes and you know what they're going through. But every perspective, we don't see it and we lack experience. But now watch this. God, in contrast, he possesses all the knowledge. He's all knowledgeable, the scripture says. He has an eternal perspective, which we don't have. And in Christ, guess what? He's experienced every kind of test. I mean, I can't even imagine when you think about God the Father sending his son to earth to pay a debt that we owe, being tested in, in Christ in, in the flesh was tested in every which way we were. Now, here's the great thing. God promises to give wisdom. We just looked at that in the text. Generously, without hesitation, but it's not automatic. We must ask in faith without what? Ask in faith without doubting. 
All right, let's move on here. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 25. Let no one say when he's tempted. Now, this is really important. I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That doesn't take a Bible scholar or any commentary to figure out what that means. God's totally aware of evil. He's totally aware of the two totally... The, he's never tempts anybody, but each is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by their own lust, or a better word I think is for that, or another word is desire or desires. Then when lust has conceived or desire has conceived, it brings birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Okay, you with me? Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's a term of endearment there. He's writing to believers, but this book is good for non-believers too. Every good, now watch this, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights without whom there is no variation or shifting shadow in the exercise of his will. Listen to this. He brought us forth by the what? Word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Let me say that again. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness, and humbly receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves... One of my other favorite verses, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude or deceive themselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like the man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, Okay, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. We see in verse 13 the nature of evil, right? I just want to stir everybody up to, to really look at this on your own. And then you see man's nature. This is a progressive thing. Then you see the nature of lust or desire. I like the word desire better. And then in 17, we see the nature of God. It's completely perfect. It's completely flawless. It's totally holy. When it says in Isaiah, holy, 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 that's for emphasis, but it literally means in the Hebrew, holy, holier, holiest, right? And truth. In 18, he's talking about regeneration. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth, right? The truth of God's word. But now here's the problem. We see regeneration, but our being fallen, right, it's internal. How can that internal problem be solved? Externally? No, it only can be solved internally. God, through his sovereign will, washes away sin. Think about that. You know, it took me a long time to understand uh, what was going on on the cross. It took me a long time to understand what Jesus did for me. And when we can be thankful for a a church like First Baptist Church of Kell that teaches the truth of God's word. But he washes away sin. He grants forgiveness. Nobody else can do this. He gives new life, right? 
I had a pastor ask me the other day, I'm so confused. He says, we are born again and we, we got, we're all new creatures, but how can we have two natures? And it's because we're still in the flesh, right? So we have this, still have that sin nature, but we've been born again. Now watch this. Uh, in verse 19, it says, this you know, this you know, my beloved brother, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now the idea is this. You know why we have two ears and one mouth? Just think about that. And if I'm busy thinking about what I'm going to say, when you're trying to tell me something, I'm confusing my mind. I've got to be quick to listen, right? And slow to speak, but watch this. It's slow to become angry, so you've got to be a careful listener at the appropriate time to speak. And that anger it's talking about there is, is not an outburst of anger. It's real slow. In the Greek, it's a slow burning anger inside. Only you know about it and only God knows about it. You know, when you're bitter and you're upset with somebody else, guess who's suffering from that? You are. Not the other person. And God knows it. So he's talking about particularly applicable to when a person hears something about the word. I can remember when I was a young Christian and I would hear something convicted by it's like, I didn't like that. I don't like that. Well, God doesn't care if you don't like it or not. You know, this is what the truth was. So then 20 through 21, the, those two verses, we, I emphasized it while reading it, teaches that anger does not accomplish what's right in God's eyes. Uh, we must renounce. So we got to put away the sin that's in us that is in the way, right? And it, sin is, the devil is, is very powerful. He's not more powerful, all powerful. He has power. There's darkness that we don't see. There's an evil Darkness going on around us. So the sin can be very sophisticated these days. It might not be drinking or smoking or something outward, but it could be like a little bitter here, you know, point my finger at you. And my dad used to say, three fingers are pointing back at you. Remember that. Uh, taking account of other people, judging them. And it doesn't say don't have discernment, but it says don't judge. Get the log out of your own eye before you try to help the brother get the speck out of his. And then 22, uh, my old class gave me a nice big stone plaque, James 1.22. I thought they were trying to give me a message. That teaches us what we do is we prove ourselves to keep on doing, to keep on obeying God's word. And sometimes it's not easy because we're so easily distracted. We get that focus off who's got the power. It's Jesus. But sometimes I think I'll, I'll take care of the little things and then Jesus, I'll just come to you when I need you. Right? I don't, sometimes don't even think about it. You just do it. And then, I, here's a great part here. It goes into explaining self-deception that James, he uses this very simple analogy, the hearer of the word. Now, let me say this first, though. What, what God is teaching us through here, look what he calls uh, Scripture. In verse 18, the word of truth, right? In verse 21, the word implanted. Uh, in verse 22, it says, doers of the word. In verse 23, it says mirror, a mirror. That's metaphorically talking about the word. In verse 25, it says the perfect law, right? So he uses this analogy in verses 23 through 25. The hearer of the word who is not also a doer is like the person who observes his natural face, okay, in a mirror. But as soon as he or they, or whoever it is, they finish looking at themselves in the mirror, they immediately forget what kind of person they just observed. Does that make sense? 
Sometimes I look in that mirror, I want to forget who that person is, right? Now, the whole idea, that forgetfulness is the point of the analogy. This is a very important point. The person sees, they're talking about God's word here, right? They see their sin. They see how horrible it is. They see God's gracious provision in Christ, but they go on their way just like they never were exposed to those realities. I mean, how many people do we know like that in our families, in our neighborhoods, around the world? Don't give up. Keep praying. But conversely, I love the contrast in Scripture. In verse 25, the person who looks intently at God's word, that's why I was telling you the mirror is metaphor, the perfect law, the law of liberty, examines it and they discover the deep and complete meaning. Then they abide in it, you see? And the mirror reveals God's will and it reveals God's truth. That's why we have this. You know, I had a perfect example. I had a wonderful friends, loving missionaries. I love them to pieces in Calcutta. He called me one day and wanted me to co-sign for his son going to Liberty College. And I just, in my spirit, you know, my body, I was all tense, you know. And I looked at the scripture and it says, don't co-sign. Don't co-sign. You never co-sign. And of course, I didn't throw that at him and to insult him. I just said, no, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable doing that. But uh, that's just one w- way of seeing what God, God, everything we need is in this scripture. All that being said, true saving faith, it pers- I get, trying to get through the first point, it perseveres through trials or the testing of your faith, but it also obeys. You with me? It also obeys God. If you have that true saving faith, it obeys. True followers of Christ, they should receive God's word humbly. We're supposed to remember it. How can you remember it? You've got to have these disciplines, right? And you obey it wholeheartedly. It shouldn't be, you know, sometimes obedience is hard. I can remember the very first time in 1996 when I had another brother say to me, go up to the, I was on a mission trip, go up to that house church and teach those people God's word. I really want you to do that. I said, are you crazy? You know, and I prayed and I got up there. My legs were shaking. My knees were hitting each other. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. So you got to obey it. And now in James, let's move on to James 1.26 through 2.13. I'll read that for us. Uh, it says, if anyone thinks, now here it starts really getting to where, I like James because you know that saying, talk is cheap, right? And this is the way James is moving here. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pretty strong. Pure and undefiled religion in, in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans class and widows, guess what, in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now he goes into this sin of partiality or favoritism. He says, my brethren, he's talking to believers. Do not hold your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Like I say, that's just right out there. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, nice comfortable pew, right? And say to the poor man, you stand over there, you know, you don't smell right, you don't look right, or sit down by my footstool, I don't really want to have much to do with you. Have you not 
made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. You know, and in my notes here, I've got in my Bible, your reasoning with, with evil reasonings. He says in verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, that's an endearment uh, phrase. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? That, of course, is Jesus. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressions, forever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of what? All. For he, said, he, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but do not commit it, you have become a transgressor of the law. All right? So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, right? For the judgment will be merciful to the one who shows mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now watch this. I'm not going to expound deeply on this, but here's some things, some main points I saw. In 26, back in chapter 1, verse 26, controlled speech is evidenced by a changed heart. You know, before I was born again, and I was like in the military and stuff, every two or three words out of my mouth was, only the Holy Spirit can change that. Verse 27, sacrificial care. And then I emphasize sacrificial care, right? For orphans and widows in need. Now, God bless my Sunday school class. Where I'm going next week to Romania. And the very first day I'm there, I'm visiting, I don't know how many widows, seven widows. You know, little gift bags over there for them, lip, what do they call that stuff that the women put on? And we go and buy them food. And uh, that sacrificial care. They could keep all that stuff for themselves. And clear separation from the world. Verse 27 through 13. Now all of these are manifestations of faith. And they're expressed through love. True faith. Fruitful faith expresses love. Right? Verse 26. If the tongue. Now if you think I'm emphasizing this for a reason, I am. Look at verse 26. If the tongue is not controlled by God, it's a sure indicator that your heart isn't either. Right? In Matthew, if, if you remember Matthew 12, verses 34, and 30, Jesus told the self-righteous Pharisees, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Religion that does not transform your heart and your tongue is worthless in God's sight. And verse 27 it's faith that loves. If we have true, fruitful faith, it cares for orphans and widows. There's not an option there. And I put a plug in for our, our fellowship here and the wisdom from our staff and the foster care and the orphanage care and the things that we're doing in this church. This is what we should be doing. And uh, the deacons, how they visit the widows. And I thank God for that. Now, it goes on. It says, when it talks about to visit, that literally means caring for others. That's not talking about stopping in for a little chat, you know. And uh, I, I want to pat myself on the back, and I'm not. I'm just going to share with you how God has impressed on me this. When I came to this church nine years ago, I just picked a widow in a nursing home. Until that widow died, then I went and picked the next widow 
until that widow died, and I'd pick the next widow. And I purposely would visit them once or twice a week. And if they liked Arby sandwiches, I went and bought them Arby sandwiches, right? And it was for God's glory, but boy, for my joy, for my good. Now, we as followers, and I say that, you know, if you're born again, you are a follower of Christ, must visit in a way that pleases God, right? And meets their needs and their distress. That's what the scripture says. Now, this is applying God's word unselfishly, right? To keep oneself unstained by the world means to long or desire for holiness, for purity, for love. Remember I told you you were saved by grace, but you were saved to love, right? To be honest in our dealings, to be truthful, and to uncompromise morals. About three years ago, I worked for one of the schools in uh, South Lake Carroll School District, and the police officer told me, I, I don't really tithe to my church when I'm a Christian. It's okay, that's interesting. But I claim 14% on my income tax. I said, that's stealing. No, claims to be a Christian, doesn't tithe to his church, and then takes 14% of his taxes. So hopefully by the grace of God, he was convicted of that. So uh, back to now the start of, of verse 2. We have 20 minutes here. to Now this is a basic principle. It's clearly stated that having genuine faith, and I say that again, having genuine faith, the faith that saves us, in the gospel of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, while holding an attitude of personal favoritism, is a contradiction. Now, stay with me on this. Favoritism, it's disrespectful, it's discourteous, and it's a very serious sin. It conflicts with our salvation and what the scripture teaches. Okay? And then the Holy Spirit, through James, he gives gives an example of favoritism. Showing favoritism, this is ingrained in us, can I tell you, in our sin nature. I've often gave this example, like in men's Bible study, if you go and you got four tables, and there's all Cubans here, and there's all blacks here, and there's all Mexican here, and all whites here, what table are you going to go sit by? You know, and most of us, we would go to where we felt the most comfortable. But I'm a little odd. I was raised in a black neighborhood, so I'd probably go sit with the black guys. But we, like I say, it's a grain in us, and we want to be to attract the kind of people that we think will most benefit us. Are you with me? Most benefit us. But if we are captivated by the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and, and what I mean by that is that Christ is his majesty, right? His supremacy over everything then we'll not show favoritism. We won't show it. We see Christ's supremacy over the wealthy. See, they're talking about that in this example here. We are to honor not the rich, but honor Christ and focus on Christ. We will also put aside favoritism when we remember his sacrifice, not just for us, but for the needy. And in verses uh, 5 through 7, when he, he's not talking about spiritually poor, but financially uh, poor, uh, the world considers them to be inferior. But now watch this. Throughout redemptive history, look what God did. God has a special concern class, and he calls the downtrodden to himself. He called me. He called you. We're all downtrodden before we were born again, right? And an example in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, God made special provisions for the poor. This is what he did. If they couldn't afford the bull or the goat, what did he say? Or a sheep? 
to bring a dove or a pigeon because they were poor. Uh, if you and I disdain the really poor and we fail to meet their needs, we disdain God. You know, I mean, you have to have some discretion, spiritual discretion, and ask God about it. I mean, I'm not one of those people that hand out money to people on the street corner, but I'll go buy them food. I'm not going to give them money so they can go buy beer. I think that would be bad stewardship on my part. And so in God's gracious love, he chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom. He chose me and he chose you. The second half of verse 6 says, don't you realize that it is the rich, right, who oppose you. They exercise, and that means to exercise inordinate power over you and they personally drag you into court. And even worse, in verse 7, they blaspheme Jesus' name. In verses 8 through 11, in Scripture, we learn that God's royal law and his commands, they're synonymous, right? They go hand in hand. The royal law is the sum and the substance of the complete word of God, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 13, 8 through 12, that love is the fulfillment of the law. The love James is talking about, it's God-given, and it's concerned about meaning and serving the needs of others physically. Growth and grace, holiness, Christ-likeness. I mean, don't you want, don't, I mean, to me, I have this constant aching in my heart for lost people. And we should be like that. God, like I said, he, we are saved by grace to love. The two greatest commandments are love the Lord the God with your heart, soul, mind, and your strength and everything. That's, and then when that happens, it can go like this to others. And then when those others see that, it brings them up to him. Does that make sense? Two greatest commandments. That's how they work. Now, we should forsake sin. Now, he's, he's speaking in verses 12 through 13. Consider this, the danger of divine judgment. We should forsake our sin. And then we've got to ask God, you know, for forgiveness. They've all been paid for. Which is, that's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can't speak for you, but that's daily for me. It's either an attitude or a thought or, you know. And he cleanses us. Now, favoritism or partiality, it's like I said this, it's inconsistent with the nature of God, right? We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. None of us in this room need any help loving ourselves. Uh, when we come before the judgment seat, this is what it's talking about here. When we come before the judgment seat, of God, and we live the life merciful to others. Watch this. God will show mercy to us. Why? Because your mercy is going to testify to your faith. Does that make sense? And the opposite is a person who's lived a life devoid of mercy to others will show they are without saving faith. My wife has the gift of mercy, and somehow it missed me, but I still have to be merciful. Because the Bible teaches me that. Uh, verses 14 through 26, James moves from this sin of showing favoritism to the relationship between faith and works. Now watch this. This is really important. And uh, I'll try to get us out of here in a good time. Faith without work is not saving faith. Why? Because if a person talks about helping someone and takes no action by itself, it's dead. Verse 17. That's what it says. It says, even so, if, 
it has no works is dead being by itself. And then in verse 18, faith and works, they're inseparable. It says, but someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You with me? So amazing to me what God does, how he does this. He gives us these great examples about Abraham and Rahab. Now, now stick with me on this. They demonstrate the kind of faith that makes them right with God. Their works or their actions gave evidence of their saving faith. You see, this is the major theme all through James. If a person has real faith, remember I said true faith, true religion, true wisdom, it's going to be manifested in and through their works. And then in verse 26, it says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, just some things, truths observed, and then we'll uh, pray and dismiss. Back to verse 14 in chapter 2. Uh, faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. That makes sense? Verses 15 through 70. People who fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers have a serious problem. I had a guy in Romania had some problem. We wired him a couple hundred dollars. He said, I just can't believe it. I said, are you kidding me? I've known you for 10 plus years. You're a brother in Christ. You had a need. I had the money. You don't have to thank me. Thank God. I said, the money's all God's. And so you have a serious problem. If, and it's talking about fellow believers. And ultimately, deedless faith is useless faith, verse 18. If you tell me you have faith and you're not doing good deeds, good luck with that. I believe what the scripture is, is teaching us. And then watch this. This is really cool because you got... I told you I would get to this part about um, Paul and, and James in this difficult passage here between 20 and 24. But in 19, faith is not just intellectual assent. You see, he says in there, you do well if you believe God is one. The demons also believe and they shudder. That's their emotions. So faith is not just intellectual assent, not simply an emotional response. Saving, true saving faith involves willful obedience. Willful obedience. Now watch this. Verses 20 uh, through 24 is a difficult passage about salvation, especially when, now let's look at, somebody look up Romans 3.28 and somebody keep your finger right there and I'll do 24. James 2.24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith. Now turn over to Romans 3.28. Okay, so now watch this. Like I said, this is a difficult Passage about salvation, especially when we compare them side by side. James is saying a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. What's Paul saying? A person is justified by faith alone apart from works, right? So which is it? Which is it? Well, James and Paul, they're both writing about the exact same gospel, but they're writing from different vantage points and they're faced with different problems in churches that they're writing to. Now watch this. Paul's fighting against this false idea that we can earn our salvation with our works. <laughs> Believe me, you can't do that. I've witnessed that a lot of people have said to me, oh, I hope I'm going to heaven. I say, what do you base that hope on? They say that the good things I've done outweigh the bad things. They say, why would Jesus come? Very simple question. And most of those people tell you, I never thought of that. And said, Open door to, to uh, telling what the Bible says. James is fighting against the false idea that intellectual belief is enough. That's not true. You see, and we're fighting today, class, these same battles. 
when, especially when you're witnessing. In uh, verses 21 through 23, he uses Abraham as an example of what he's saying. Paul used Abraham in Romans 4 as an example. Abraham is the model of faith. Just think about this, right? You have your son, and God says, take him up there and sacrifice him. Did God know he wasn't going to be sacrificed? Of course he did. But Abraham, he's showing he's, he's the model of faith for both of these biblical authors. Rahab, she was a recipient of grace. She feared God. She saw him as sovereign. She risked all that she had to spread his glory, right? Now, here we go. Here's, here's the conclusion. Christ is the basis of our justification. Faith is the means of our justification. Works are the evidence of our justification. And these are only possible clasped by the grace of God. Now, let me just take two minutes and we'll pray. Let's look at the contrast between Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was a patriarch of the Jewish people, right? Rahab was a prostitute in the middle of a Gentile nation. Abraham was the friend of God. Rahab was living in the middle of the enemies of God. Abraham was a great leader. Rahab was a common citizen. Abraham was at the top of the social order. Where was Rahab? The bottom of the social order. Now remember, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, I remember studying that. I thought, this is crazy, but it's extremely important. Rahab was in the genealogy of Jesus, right? Holy God of the universe took a prostitute and brought her in. Don't you love that? That's grace. And praise God, he reached down to each of us the same way. If we're truly born again, we are recipients of grace. This is the whole picture of justification. God is just by pouring out the wrath due for our sin on Jesus. And he's just, he punishes sin to the fullest extent. And he justifies people who have faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you uh, so much for your word. Never changes. Uh, Every gift that comes from you is absolutely perfect. Lord, help each of us as we uh, go from uh, this Uh, study today and the other studies from this morning, the worship time last night, to remember the goodness of God, of you, the mercies that you have, that we're we're to show mercy as your followers. Help us not to show favoritism, Lord. Help us to persevere through our trials. Help us to act in ways that are becoming to you. Help us to love the household of faith. Help us to love the lost, even our enemies, Lord. Help us to pray for them. And I will give you all the praise and glory for who you are and what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.